This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Welcome to Preservation Oaks. Ladies and gentlemen, please pardon my slightly different voice today as I'm recovering from a recent bout of COVID. It definitely hit me hard initially, but I'm overcoming it and I'm glad to report that I'm feeling much better. I'd like to apologize for any delays in responding to your email questions and comments sent to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Rest assured, we're working diligently to address them as swiftly as possible. Thank you for your understanding and support. We have an exciting program lined up for you today. Throughout our journey across the United States, meeting professionals from various museums, cultural and heritage institutions, preservation, historical and genealogical societies, as well as media creators, we've encountered organizations with dedicated archivists and curators, while others with comparable collections lack these positions. In our previous episode, Who Needs an Archivist?, we had the pleasure of speaking with Ms. Cheyenne Janstetter from the Museum of Danish America in Elkhorn, Iowa. Cheyenne graciously shared insights into the role of an archivist, enlightening us on its significance. This inquiry emerged from pondering why some societies invest in archivists or curators, or both, while others with similar-sized collections do not. Beyond financial considerations, I wanted to delve deeper into the value these roles bring to organizations and the preservation and exhibition of collections on behalf of the communities they serve. In today's episode, we aim to gain a clearer understanding of the curator role and when organizations should consider adding one. We'll explore the necessary funding for proper curation and discuss the benefits and value of investing in a curator, both for the community and the society. This episode is intended for societies, their boards of directors and members contemplating funding a qualified curator. It's also for the general public interested in understanding the role of a curator and the advantages of having one. By doing so, individuals who donate can better plan their contributions to their supported society. Engaging with a qualified professional curator or appreciating the value of and retaining the one they have. To shed light on these questions, we have the privilege of speaking with Mr. James Burns, a highly experienced curator, thanks to the kind introduction by Stacy Swigert, 
the current chairperson of the Curators Committee at the American Alliance of Museums. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the American Alliance of Museums, whose mission it is to champion equitable and impactful museums by fostering learning, community, and excellence. Their website, www.aam-us.org, serves as a valuable resource, advocating for the museum field and providing professionals with the tools, knowledge, inspiration, and connections needed to advance the industry. With a membership of 35,000 museums and museum professionals, the AAM represents the entire spectrum of museums from art and history to science centers and zoos. Since 1906, they've been at the forefront of museum advocacy, striving to enhance communities and the world through collaborative, human-centered experiences, education, and connection to histories, cultures, nature, and one another. Their members spark curiosity, broaden horizons, foster understanding, and forge community bonds by championing equity and learning. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, coming to you from Salt Lake City. This is the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we showcase interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, preservation, historical, and genealogical societies throughout the United States. Thank you for tuning in. Our primary platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can also find us on nearly every podcast platform, as well as many social media platforms. Wherever you choose to listen, I greatly appreciate your support through likes, comments, follows, or subscriptions. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Now, here's a couple of humorous items. Number one, I saw a meme today. It read, history remembers only the celebrated, but genealogy remembers them all. I really like that. It originated from Lawrence Overmeyer. Number two, here's a few sayings that only genealogists can appreciate. Number one, cousins marrying cousins cause very tangled roots. Number two, isn't genealogy fun? The answer to one problem leads to two more. Number three, a pack rat is hard to live with but makes a fine ancestor. Number four, blessed are the elderly, for they remember what we never knew. Number five, the world is run by those who show up for meetings. That's so true. Number six, life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. Number seven, there is strength in our root. Number eight, genealogy. Will I ever find time to mow the lawn again? And number nine, I finally got it all together. Now, where did I put it? Let's drink some tea, some Twinings tea. Love Twining's Tea. As you know, you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Now let me introduce you all to Mr. James Burns, starting with a brief biography. James Burns is principal of Cypress Sage Advising, specializing in accessibility and inclusion consulting and freelance curatorial work. 
He had a 30-year career as a museum professional, serving as executive director of five museums, following many years as a curator, archivist, and registrar in state, municipal, university, and private museums. James holds a BA in history from the University of Arizona, an MA in public history from Arizona State University, and a PhD in educational policy studies. The Social and Cultural Foundations of Education from Georgia State University. He is a graduate of the Gettys Museum Management Institute and worked in history, anthropology, and art museums in Arizona, Georgia, Virginia, and Louisiana. A seasoned arts and cultural leader and strategist with substantial experience in nonprofits, higher education, and public policy, James's love of curatorial work is rooted in the role exhibitions and programs play as informal lifelong learning experiences. He sees their potential to build or rebuild community and foster civil discourse and civil dialogue. James enjoys developing partnerships and collaborations. He now uses his professional experience in higher education and museums and lived experience as a neurodiverse person to assist not-for-profits in implementing inclusive practices, dismantling institutional inequities, and becoming more accessible to neurodiverse individuals. An experienced curator who has worked in a diverse spectrum of museums, James is the perfect person to discuss the role of curators so we can understand more about their importance. For more information, James can be reached at cypresssageadvising at gmail.com. And with that, let's bring James Burns onto the program. All right, welcome to the program, James. Thank you. James, I'm really very honored and appreciative to have you here today, and I'm very grateful for your time and expertise. You are an expert. Thank you for helping us understand more about the curator role. Can you please tell our audience a little bit about your background, how you became interested in being a curator? Sure, Sean, thanks for asking. So I am one of the few people that I know that I always say went into museums by design rather than by chance. As an undergraduate, I, I went through a series of, of majors and finally landed on history and somehow ended up still completing the bachelor's degree in four years. And I remember when I uh, switched to that major, both my parents and my advisor looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do with that? And of course, my parents are afraid I'm never going to have gainful employment. And uh, my advisor pointed to a chart on the wall of his office that said careers in history. And I remember looking at it, and the, the one thing that jumped out at me was museum curator. And uh, I was an undergrad at the University of Arizona at the time, and he had a friend who was a, a curator at the Arizona State Museum. And so my advisor said, okay, well, I think you need to go uh, volunteer. I'm going to put you in touch with a friend of mine and go see what you think. And uh, I did. I started volunteering and I was hooked on that very first day. And I've worked in a museum ever since I was 19 years old. Wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. You designed that whole thing. It wasn't that you just sort of fell into it. That's great. Yeah, it, it was very intentional. And it was also very, it was also a, a very wise decision 
for reasons that I only found out many, many years later. About five years ago, I received a a late-in-life diagnosis on the autism spectrum. And, And when I found that out, my choice of careers made so much more sense. It it really saved me in a way before the the uh, diagnoses were all combined onto a spectrum. It would have been Asperger's syndrome. And oh. today it, it probably would get a level one autism diagnosis. I was 47 years old. Wow. And yeah. And, you know, I, I don't have any savant-like abilities, unfortunately. We often think of that stereotypically when we think of people with Asperger's syndrome. I do have deficits, but I also have higher than average cognitive functioning abilities. So I'm kind of right in the middle. And I always try to remember to acknowledge the people on both sides of me on the spectrum. Yeah. I imagine that really changed your life and opened your eyes to a lot of things. A lot of things started making sense, huh? A lot of things started making sense, and it has really uh, reshaped my career as well, which I'm sure will come out a little bit in our discussion. Okay, fantastic. Well, you know, as you and I have discussed, my objective with this episode is to provide both our audience and myself with a more comprehensive understanding of the curator role. And by doing so, we hope to enlighten the individuals who generously donate and fund numerous Preservation Oaks organizations across the country about the necessity and value of the curator role. While I have a basic understanding that a curator shares the narrative behind the objects and artifacts in a museum, I believe it would be most beneficial to hear your professional perspective. Could you please help us grasp the essence of what a curator is and what their responsibilities entail? Sure. And I'm also going to refer to you to a a white paper that I was part of developing back in 2014 called the Curator Core Competencies. And that can be found on the AAM, American Alliance of Museums website. It was created when I was working with one of their professional networks, the Curators Committee. And that white paper was even subsequently presented at an international council of of museums meeting at the Sorbonne in Paris. And it outlines, but of course, this document is almost 10 years old now. And as I was reading it last night, I realized it really needs a refresh. But it's a good, succinct document that explains in a very broad sense what curators do. Now, to directly answer your question, I... I want to emphasize that the role of the curator really depends on the size of the organization. And I know that a lot of your listeners probably work for small, all-volunteer-run genealogical societies or historical societies. Maybe they have one or two paid employees at the most. So I I think it, it might first help to name and define some of the roles of the professionals who have separate roles in larger museums, because smaller organizations often expect one person who they happen to call curator to fill all of those functions. And so some of the roles that I'm talking about in larger museums, let's take, for example, a small volunteer-run organization, and we say that we have a curator, and that curator does 
exhibitions and they take care of the collection and they take care of public programming, speaking out in the community, adding things to the collection, taking care of things when there's something that needs to be conserved, for example. In a larger institution, you're going to have professionals with very different titles who do those things. For example, I know we're going to talk about archivists. Well, and I understand that a lot of larger institutions will have a whole team of archivists that are taking care of the two-dimensional pieces that are in the collection from you know, journals to ephemera, letters, rare books, photographs, and other types of media, so on and so forth. You also, in a larger institution, possibly would have, probably would have, a person called a registrar or sometimes called a collections manager. And in that size of an organization, that's a whole person that's dedicated to caring for the physical and legal aspects of caring for the three-dimensional collection, and sometimes the two-dimensional collection as well. You might also have someone who is a museum educator, or they might be called an education curator, and those people would interface with the curator to develop programs for various audiences out in the community. And then finally, you might have a team that specifically does exhibitions. So you might have an exhibition designer who's responsible for the aesthetics, the look and the feel of the exhibition, what people are going to experience. And you might also have someone, usually on contract, sometimes on staff, that is very skilled in making the special mounts that we need to properly hold objects while on display so that they're safe and they're not deteriorating. So that's a lot of different, and those are my definitions of those roles. But again, to come back to smaller institutions, like a lot of your listeners, they call someone a curator, and the curator is really doing all of those different things. But ultimately, they have very similar functions, no matter what the institution. Preservation, research, and communication. And there may be many specific responsibilities under each of those competencies that is institution-specific. So, Yeah, it's a bit of muddy waters here, right? Sometimes. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. That makes it exciting. So the differences between a curator and an archivist, from your perspective, is that an archivist, while they may be one and the same, if you do have two roles, an archivist handles what you're referring to as 2D objects? Right. So again, think of it, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying because in, in our you know, modern age, it, it could also be things like digital media, but But I'm really thinking of essentially things on paper to make it really simple, whether it's a photograph, again, a journal, a ledger, an account book, basically anything that's on on paper is something that an archivist would have specialized knowledge in how to care for those materials, how to store them, how to make them accessible. And, you know, as you 
collect more diverse kinds of materials, such as what we would call digital born. That's something that basically think of it as something uh, as simple as um, a photograph that you took on your cell phone and it preserved uh, an event that just happened and the museum wants to collect it. Well, there's a whole huge set of factors and considerations that go into taking care of things that, you know, the, the physicality is different. It's digital. Right, right. If I am a, a smaller organization and I'm thinking about, you know, these artifacts that I have, both objects in 2D, mm -hmm. how do I know when a curator is needed and what are the benefits of having a curator? So want to emphasize that, that it's, that's a very hard question. The decision of who to hire really depends on the individual circumstances of each organization. And so what I mean by that is for any one of your listeners at a, at a museum or a historical society out there, it, it depends on how is their collection, 2D or 3D, currently housed and stored? Is it accessible? Do they know what they have? Has it been documented? How are things being cared for? Are the conditions pretty good or are they not, not really stable? Are the items housed in an area where it's generally safe and comfortable for people to work? And the reason that I bring this up is, you know, adding a curator can absolutely, it absolutely does add value. But if you have a collection that is not well housed and cared for and not really documented, that means that access is probably pretty tough. And it might be that you actually need someone who's a little more specialized, like an archivist or a registrar, in the physical care of the collection first oh, right. so that it's then accessible for for a curator. I'm I'm a little old school, Sean. When I think of the primary role of, of a curator, I, I always immediately go to interpreting and disseminating information. But you have to know what you have and you have to be able to access it before you can do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make perfect sense. I was thinking the other day about the curator. Once a curator understands this, so let's say I'm I'm you know, I'm hired as a curator in a particular museum. I mean, that curator over time is going to get to know that collection so good, they are almost irreplaceable. They're, a, they're an expert on the, the entire collection of the museum. Does that uh, resonate with you? It, yes, it does resonate. As I think back over my 30 plus year career in museums, I knew a lot of curators when I first got into the profession in 1990 who exactly fit that description. Yeah. And, and some large museums, well-funded, had the ability to have entire teams of curators that would specialize in the different kinds of collections that they had. That's probably the single thing that has most dramatically changed in the last 30 years. 
And there's a lot of people who have been in museums for a long time who kind of mourn that loss of the specialist curator. More than anything else, I would say that what I've seen is curators become uh, more and more generalists. Uh And, And oftentimes, museums are actually relying on, I use the term armchair historian in a friendly way. There are often people out there in our communities that know far more about a particular topic or a particular kind of object than a curator might these days. And so it's been a process of learning to share knowledge and share authority with people out in our communities. And so that that kind of gave rise to the term community curators, which is, I think, a little bit of a misnomer. People get confused, but one of the important things for a curator to be able to do today, for example, is you're you're in the Intermountain West, so water and water rights in the American West. I am a little bit old school, and so that happens to be something that I have a lot of specialized knowledge in. But if I didn't, or even though I do, I often will seek out experts in the community who uh, I know and trust and can supplement that information with. So you're you're also talking about you know in, institutional memory because curators who have been somewhere for a very long time you know, develop vast networks of people right. in in the communities that they interface with. And so I think, like, I, I hear what you're saying, and I really like it. And I almost would say today that it's that communication piece and those relationships with the community that is the thing that is a greater loss for an institution when a curator moves on because those those museums are in the business of building relationships. And when you lose someone who has that kind of vast network, it's acutely felt. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Now, can you tell us what it takes to become a qualified curator? Well, so let me say first that there are, there are lots of paths to becoming Uh, a curator. And there are some very few specialized programs in curation that, you know, you can can go and get a degree or a certificate in that, or you can get a degree or certificate in something like museum studies or historic preservation, which are going to give you a, a broader perspective. You also still could do something like material culture studies. Like if, I mean, if you're, I don't know, super interested in 19th century military in the West, you can go immerse yourself in that and still get a a traditional degree in history or American studies or things that are related to that. I don't want to say I, I, I would what I want to emphasize is that the the it's really about the knowledge, the skills, and the experience. And I always tell my own students 
that when I was in a position of hiring, I was less interested in how many degrees they had than how they could demonstrate the skills that I knew they would need to be a successful curator. Um, You know, good interpersonal skills, uh, being able to be a, a good facilitator, being able to be, uh, you know, detail-oriented, but also a big systems thinker so that you can put, you know, the topic that your institution focuses on into a broader a broader context. So it, it, it can be a combination of on-the-job training and trial and error, and it can be anything from a bachelor's degree to a PhD, and I don't get really hung up on that as much as I once used to. There are still uh, types of museums where that kind of very specialized knowledge and advanced degrees still seems to matter more than others, and I would specifically call out art museums. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a difference. So we're talking like four years get a bachelor's degree and you know you, you can you can then step out as a certified or qualified curator to do more you can position yourself that way by gaining some actual experience working in a museum historical society genealogical society as well i mean i think i think that experience still really matters you know depending on the the degree the 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 knowledge that is being conveyed can be not always but it can be um very theoretical in nature and you know i know when i was doing a lot of hiring that i needed someone who could understand how to navigate organizations and bring people together, um, not just um, be in a meeting and cite theory. Because in in the real world, that isn't how things work. The rubber's got to hit the road, right? Right. So I think it's, it's really best when you have a a combination. Um, you know, I I still believe that a that a bachelor's degree of some kind is a great benefit because the education that you get it gives you a a good context and it helps you with the range of skills that curators need to succeed. Right. Well, I'm thinking also, you know, getting some kind of qualification in school might help you understand the, the core competency tools that you have to use or that most curators across the industry use to be successful. Would that be accurate? Yes, it, it, it is accurate for sure. And I mean, the reason I'm hesitating to say that you don't have to have any degree is, is that, you know, it, it is a a highly skilled and nuanced 
profession and it is a profession and you know the the anti-intellectualism movement that we've been seeing grow stronger and stronger over the past decades has affected curators as well so i think i think the piece of paper still matters is the bottom line okay that's fair thank you for that what kind of challenges does a curator face well Picking up on something I just said, uh, museums and curatorial work are a microcosm of our society. And that's not something that I often hear discussed. And it's really important because as societal tensions have risen and ideological polarization has intensified, those things that are happening in the, our broader society have reverberated through museums. And so what I mean by that is, you know, our time and again, when studies are done, museums continually rank near the top of the list of trusted institutions in our society, far more than elected officials or media or even religion. And this is a great responsibility for museums and for curators because, you know, they are very integral to the philosophical work of the museum or genealogical society. And so I guess what I wish that I had been told when I started out in museums is that they're some of the most political organizations on earth ah. and they always have been. And, and so that is challenging for curators. And what it means is that there's a, a great responsibility for curators to understand research principles, ethics, use of sources, vetting sources, objectivity, being able to analyze and synthesize a lot of complex information, and being able to do that in a variety of writing and speaking styles based on the audience. Does that does that kind of answer your question? It does. Thank you. I'm wondering, you know, for all of the directors and executive directors who are listening to this podcast, and I haven't yet engaged with a curator, but I'm having a hard time getting my hands on some of my artifacts and so on. Can, can you share your thoughts on the profile of an organization where funding a curator will bring value to the organization and its members? You know, how do I know as that executive director when it's time to start thinking about, hey, I should retain a curator because that's going to help us right now? Um, yes, I, I would say that there are many ways that institutions can benefit from the value that a curator brings to the table, but that it's also, again, a very individualized set of, of circumstances that, that lead you to make that decision. And, and so there's a program that the American Alliance of Museum runs that I have been a part of for almost 25 years now. Uh, called the Museum Assessment Program. Okay. And I highly recommend it for really organizations of all sizes. They offer five different types of assessments. And 
you can uh, apply for it through AAM, and it is funded in part through the Institute for Museum and Library Services. And the assessments are focused on various aspects of the organization. So there's a broad organizational assessment. There's an education and interpretation, community and audience engagement, board leadership, and finally collection stewardship. And so, you know, participating in one or more of those can be a very helpful step to knowing when it's time to add not just a curator to your staff, but, you know, potentially other roles as well. So what the assessment provides is uh, usually one, sometimes two in rare cases, seasoned museum professionals that come in usually on site and spend time with the various stakeholders of the institution and do a site tour and then, you know, write up a an assessment that is designed to be used to further the, the mission of the organization and address some of the deficits that, that may be there. And so I bring that up because potentially, depending on where an institution is at, Someone may come in and do an assessment, and and one of the recommendations may be, hey, your your collection's in pretty good shape. It's 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 well cared for. It's pretty well documented. I really think you could benefit from having a curator of of some sort come on board. So again, I would I would seek the counsel of peers who have been in the profession for a long time to determine when is the right time for your institution. Yeah, makes perfect sense. James, it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Are you ready for an adventure that sparks your curiosity and ignites your imagination? Look no further than the American Alliance of Museums, your gateway to a world of wonder and discovery. Step into a realm where history comes alive, where art captivates your soul, and where science reveals the mysteries of our universe. The American Alliance of Museums invites you to embark on an extraordinary journey through the realms of knowledge and creativity. Whether you're a history enthusiast, an art lover, or a science buff, our network of museums offers something for everyone. Immerse yourself in captivating exhibitions, featuring priceless artifacts and stunning works of art, all thoughtfully curated to inspire and enlighten. Families, we've got you covered. Our family-friendly museums create unforgettable experiences for all ages. Watch your little ones' faces light up with excitement as they explore interactive exhibits, designed to nurture their curiosity and spark their thirst for knowledge. 
Support our mission to preserve cultural heritage, promote education, and enrich communities across the nation. By visiting our member museums, you become a part of this noble endeavor, leaving a lasting impact on future generations. I never knew history could come to life like this. This artwork takes my breath away. It's truly mesmerizing. The science exhibits here are mind-blowing. I can't wait to share this with my students. Visit www.aam-us.org today to find a museum near you and plan your next adventure. Unleash your imagination, expand your horizons, and create memories that will stay with you forever. The American Alliance of Museums, where knowledge meets inspiration, where the past connects with the present, and where curiosity knows no bounds. Open your mind, open your heart, and explore the magic of museums. The American Alliance of Museums proudly supports the cultural tapestry of our great nation. This advertisement is sponsored by Preservation Oaks, telling listeners around the globe about the American Alliance of Museums. Please visit www.aam-us.org for more information. Nine out of ten genealogists agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. This is Taylor Volts, the director of the Historic Mobile Preservation Society, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. This is Mary Lee Montgomery, the director of the Condi Charlotte Museum in Mobile, Alabama, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is Ann Rollins from the Old Fort Genealogical Society in Fort Scott, Kansas. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Preservation Oaks. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, your host, and today we have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. James Burns, a highly professional and experienced curator. Let's continue our conversation where we left off. Welcome back, James. Thank you, Sean. First thing I want to do, James, is provide listeners with your contact information. Of course, you're on LinkedIn.com at WJamesBurns, and your email is CypressSage advising at gmail.com. That's correct. Are you currently taking any clients? Uh, yes, I am still taking on new clients all the time. Happy to have conversations with prospective clients. Okay. And would you be one of those people who, if I if I am a smaller institution or I think it's time to get a curator, could mm-hmm. you help with that assessment? Absolutely, I can, either in a in a formal sense through the museum assessment program. And I'm one of many peer assessors and they, they might get me, they might not. They could 
they could ask for me if they wanted, or we could we could probably work independently to 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 do that as well. And I just want to also emphasize that you know there's there's lots of the 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 model for curating is evolving. And if an organization thinks that they might be ready to engage a curator, it doesn't necessarily have to be by adding a full-time W-2 employee. Uh, It could be. It could be part-time. It also could be contract freelance, which is what I do now. Okay. Yeah, very good points. You mentioned that American Association of Museums paper where you're giving curator core competencies. Will you send me the link so that I can put that into the program when it is released? Yes, I will send that link. And I will also send the link to a document created by the same professional network, the Curators Committee, called the Curators Code of Ethics, which is another really important document. Uh, That one also needs updating. I was part of the task force that worked on that project, but uh, I think that was back in 2009. So time for a refresh. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the biggest things, I mean, if I do an assessment as an executive director of of an organization and Mm -hmm. you guys come back and say, well, here's what we found, do you also include potential assessment of costs in order to make that plan a reality? That is something that when I've, when I've done assessments before, I have been able to provide some guidance in that area. Yes, oftentimes an organization will struggle to identify the funding or maybe not really be sure, quite sure where to go to find that kind of expertise. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that all peer reviewers do the same, but I I have tended to form deep and enduring professional relationships with the organizations that I have reviewed. And they'll also oftentimes check back in with me and say, hey, do you do you have an idea of how much this might cost or how we can economize and create efficiencies? So sometimes there's there's very creative ways to partner with other organizations in the community to get the things done that you want to get done. Right. Okay. In your experience, what are the differences between organizations that have invested in a curator working on their behalf versus those who have not? Do you see a vast difference? Well, this is a delicate topic to address because in no way, shape, or form do I want to imply that because someone doesn't have a, an organization doesn't have a curator that they don't embody the qualities that I'm going to talk about. But so I'll say this from the perspective of organizations that I've worked with that do have a curator who is well-respected. And again, it goes back to museums being in the business of building relationships. And I think that that's more important now than ever. And so I think something that I consistently see with organizations that have a curator who embodies the qualities that we need in curators today have a certain gravitas or prestige. It lends the museum a certain greater level of credibility that they're a source of reliable and trusted information and that the sources that you're you're using are solid and 
So I think the you know the reputation of the curatorial staff can enhance the organization. Scholars tend to provide credibility as a trusted source of information, and you know curators. I, I don't love the term necessarily, but in essence, they're like the they're like the journalists of the museum world. They're information brokers, and and they they maintain a vast amount of knowledge and the ability to access that knowledge and to access experts when they don't have all of the the knowledge that that they need you know so and it's a and it's a great responsibility i mean i'll i'll, I'll take just a, a recent example i'm thinking of that you know i never heard about until probably 3 or 4 years ago and i have two degrees in american history and so, you know, part of that credibility and responsibility comes with, you know, having and sharing not only the, the, the knowledge that is, you know, generally well known by many of us, but also all of the history that has been untold for so long. And that example I'm thinking about how I got through two degrees and you know, 25 years in museums. And embarrassingly, I had never heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. It was curators who really brought that to light as the 100th anniversary of the massacre uh, occurred just a couple of years ago. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it really does have to do with the reputation, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it was a terrible day when that happened. Yeah. James, would you like to share any additional thoughts or comments that could help our audience gain a better understanding of the role of a curator and its value to local museums, cultural and heritage institutions, preservation, historical and genealogical societies across the United States? Your insights would be greatly appreciated. I, I think some of the things to think about regarding curation and having either a volunteer or a paid curator on your team is that they need to have an ability to work with a really broad cross-section of society, of stakeholders that work with museums. So might be collectors or artisans, scholars, donors, artists, and curators uh, also need to be comfortable in navigating many different environments. Uh, they need to have a certain level of uh, leadership skills and, and obviously be able to be one of the very important voices and faces of their organization in the community. So, you know, interpersonal skills are really, really important. And this is maybe a, a, a time for me of, of all people to know that that doesn't mean if you happen to be an individual with a, a disability of some kind, for example, um, if you are in uh, one way or another neurodiverse, like myself, that you can't be successful in this role. You absolutely can. And sometimes I actually feel like it has been a benefit to me because I am unapologetically authentic. I, I don't I don't know how not to be 
So I want I want listeners to to hear that message. Don't overlook whole swaths of your community when you're thinking about bringing a curator on board, whether in a paid or a volunteer capacity. It's really important that people who are curators be able to make tough judgment calls regarding what narratives to share, what artifacts to use to illustrate those narratives. The most effective method of of delivering those messages, conveying those concepts for a variety of different learners. And, and all of that falls on curators. It's a, it's a really big responsibility. It's important that they be able to do what I, uh, is, is known as in the, um, in the sight-impaired community, audio description. So, you know, for our visually impaired audiences, being able to bring those objects alive that they're not able to see. And similarly, to convey that information maybe to a hearing impaired audience in a different way. And and that means, you know, compiling data from a multitude of sources, distinguishing between good information and bad and developing a narrative that a as broad as possible of a swath of the public is able to understand because ultimately that's when curators and museums succeed is when they're able to take what they have learned about a topic or an object and convey it to a broad audience in a way that that audience can connect it in a meaningful way to their everyday life. Because that's one of the challenges museums face today is, is answering the, the so what question. And I would, I would argue that museums and curators still matter a lot. Right. That makes sense to me. Thank you very much for that. Sure. All right, James, I want to extend my gratitude to you for generously sharing your time and expertise. Your valuable insights have been immensely beneficial, not only to me, but also to our listeners. I've learned a great deal. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a guest of your caliber and extensive experience on the show. Thank you once again for being a part of this enlightening conversation. Thank you, Sean. It's been a delight, and I hope that your audiences benefit and that they won't hesitate to reach out if they have questions. All right. Thank you for that. To our listeners, if you provide support to museums, cultural, and heritage institutions, preservation, historical, and genealogical societies that currently do not have a curator, the insights shared in this episode can help you assess whether the organization is a suitable candidate for this role. It will equip you with knowledge on what to anticipate from a curator and what steps need to be taken to make it a reality. At the very least, you'll be armed with valuable information to initiate meaningful discussions with the leaders of your organization. And with that, we conclude our conversation with our guest, James Burns. We encourage our listeners to share their thoughts and comments regarding the valuable information communicated in this episode, particularly if it's been helpful to you and your organization. Please send your feedback to preservationoaks at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 
Now over to Katie Bialis for our wrap-up. Thank you. Great episode, Sean. Listeners, if you have comments or questions about the episode, send an email anytime to preservationoaks at gmail.com or connect directly with James if you would like to discuss his services. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Symbol Bird, Watermelow, 331, Dread Studio, Audio Library, Music Dream, Ecolix, and Aaron Lieberman. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Now, back to you, Sean. Thanks, Katie. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.